Hello and welcome to the August 16th, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in Annals since our last podcast. And Sovabep is a designer and Chiron repeat protein, a novel class of engineered proteins under investigation as a treatment for SARS-CoV-2 infection. The first article I want to highlight reports a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial to investigate whether Ensovibep, in addition to remdesivir and other standard care, improves clinical outcomes among patients hospitalized with COVID-19 compared with standard care alone. This multi-center, multinational trial assessed for early futility on the basis of pulmonary ordinal scores at day five. The primary outcome was time to sustained recovery through day 90, defined as 14 consecutive days in place of usual residence after hospital discharge. A composite safety outcome that included death, serious adverse events, end organ disease, and serious infections was assessed through day 90. After 485 patients entered the trial, an independent data and safety monitoring board recommended halting enrollment because of early futility. The 90-day cumulative incidence of sustained recovery was 82% for insovibep and 80% for placebo. So unfortunately, this trial documents a therapeutic agent that doesn't appear to benefit patients with COVID-19. Direct-acting antiviral medications are safe and effective for people receiving opioid agonist therapy and people with recent injected drug use. However, there are concerns that hepatitis C virus reinfection may reduce the benefits of cure among people who inject drugs and compromise hepatitis C elimination efforts. Next is a cohort study that found that reinfection rates are low after successful hepatitis C virus infection treatment in people who inject drugs, suggesting a benefit of treatment in this population that some have assumed would have very high reinfection rates. The study also identified factors, specifically ongoing drug use and sharing of needles associated with reinfection, which was highest in the first 24 weeks after treatment completion. Researchers from Sydney, Australia studied 286 participants from the COSTAR trial who were receiving opioid agonist therapy to evaluate the rate of hepatitis C virus reinfection for three years after successful treatment with antivirals. Patients were followed every six months for up to three years. During that time, 10 participants had a total of 11 reinfections or reinfection rate of 1.7 per 100 person years. Six of those reinfections occurred within 24 weeks of completing treatment. Reinfection rates were higher among participants who had injected drugs or those who engaged in needle or syringe sharing within the previous 24 weeks. The authors suggest that based on their findings, this 24-week period is important for optimizing treatment of opioid use disorder and for providing access to syringe programs that have documented benefits for preventing hepatitis C virus transmission and reinfection. In the most recent Beyond the Guidelines feature, a hematologist and a cardiologist and vascular medicine specialist discuss guidelines from the American Society of Hematology in the context of the care of a patient with pulmonary embolism. All Beyond the Guidelines features are based on the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and include print, video, and educational components published on annals.org. Pulmonary embolism increases mortality risk and is often stratified in the acute setting into low, intermediate, and high risk based primarily on the absence or presence of markers of RV strain or hemodynamic compromise. Almost all cases of pulmonary embolism are managed with anticoagulation for three to six months to treat the initial clot, and some cases are further treated with additional anticoagulants to prevent future venous thromboembolic events. 
Intermediate and high-risk pulmonary embolism is managed in inpatient settings, sometimes with access to more advanced therapies, including intravenous systemic thrombolysis, surgical embolectomy, and catheter-based therapies. Venous thromboembolism can be provoked or unprovoked by risk factors. The Grand Rounds discussants, Jason Freed, a hematologist, and Brett Carroll, a cardiologist and vascular medicine specialist, debated the management of Mrs. P, a 47-year-old woman taking oral contraceptives who presented with intermediate-risk pulmonary embolism. Dr. Freed recommended only a limited role for advanced therapies in cases of intermediate-risk pulmonary embolism, citing the negative results of the pulmonary embolism thrombolysis trial, as well as the lack of high-quality data for catheter-directed therapies. Dr. Carroll argued that advanced therapies, in particular catheter-directed therapies, may be a good option for patients with intermediate-risk pulmonary embolism and concerning clinical features who are at low risk for bleeding. Dr. Freed recommends indefinite anticoagulation for patients with unprovoked pulmonary embolism or proximal deep venous thrombosis who are not at high risk for bleeding. For provoked pulmonary embolism, he recommends against secondary prevention anticoagulation even if the provoking factor was minor. In contrast, Dr. Carroll classifies patients with pulmonary embolism along a spectrum from strongly provoked to strongly unprovoked rather than into two non-overlapping categories. He incorporates persistent risk factors as well as thrombophilia and D-dimer testing in select patients to determine recurrence risk and strength of indication for secondary prevention with anticoagulation. For patients whose conditions may warrant longer-term anticoagulation, particularly for those with an initially weak provoking factor, he often recommends apixaban and rivaroxaban at half-dose to mitigate bleeding risk. The Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies has released clinical practice guidelines for the appropriate use of COVID-19 convalescent plasma in hospital and outpatient settings. Based on two living systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials, the guidelines provide five specific recommendations for treating patients with COVID-19 the guidelines suggest that convalescent plasma is most effective when transfused with high neutralizing titers to infected patients early after symptom onset. COVID-19 convalescent plasma has emerged as potential treatment of the infection. However, meta-analysis data and recommendations are limited. A team led by the Association for Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies Clinical Transfusion Medicine Committee studied published research to inform guidelines. Based on the data, the Association for Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies recommends that non-hospitalized patients at high risk for disease progression should have convalescent plasma transfusion in addition to the usual standard of care. They also recommend against convalescent plasma transfusion in hospitalized patients with moderate or severe disease, but say that convalescent plasma transfusion should be added to usual care for those who do not have SARS-CoV-2 antibodies detected at admission and for those with pre-existing immunosuppression. The guidelines recommend against prophylactic convalescent plasma transfusion for uninfected persons with close contact exposure to a person with COVID-19. The authors say there are several advantages of convalescent plasma. While SARS-CoV-2 evolves and new variants of concern emerge that may evade monoclonal antibodies, high titer COVID-19 convalescent plasma continues to be effective. Convalescent plasma is also relatively easy to collect and less expensive than other passive antibody therapies. Next is a decision model that found that the relative clinical benefit of left atrial appendage occlusion and oral anticoagulants in patients with atrial fibrillation depends on the patient's baseline risk for stroke and bleeding. 
left atrial appendage occlusions were found to be the preferred strategy in those with the highest bleeding risk, this benefit became less certain with increasing risk for ischemic stroke and increasing bleeding risk. Left atrial appendage occlusion is a potential alternative to anticoagulation in selected patients with atrial fibrillation. Compared with anticoagulants, left atrial appendage occlusion decreases major bleeding risk, but concerns remain over the possible increased risk of ischemic stroke. Researchers from the University of Calgary and Duke Clinical Research Institute used a decision analytic model to simulate a virtual clinical trial of stroke prevention strategies in a cohort of elderly individuals with atrial fibrillation and without prior stroke to better understand the risk-benefit trade-offs when choosing between left atrial appendage occlusion and oral anticoagulants contingent on a patient's stroke risk and bleeding risk. The primary endpoint was clinical benefit measured in quality-adjusted life years, and the secondary endpoints were life expectancy or life years and net clinical benefit. The researchers found that the clinical benefit of left atrial appendage occlusion over oral anticoagulation depends on the patient-specific baseline risk for stroke and bleeding. Although appendage occlusions were favorable among patients with the highest bleeding risk, that benefit became less certain at higher stroke risk. According to the researchers, these findings may help to inform shared decision-making when selecting therapy for patients with atrial fibrillation. The recent Supreme Court ruling on Dobbs versus Jackson raises concerns for patients with rheumatic disease and their clinicians. These concerns include access to medically indicated abortion, access to necessary medications that are potentially teratogenic, and laws that interfere with patient-clinician discussions about reproductive issues. A new commentary by leaders of the American College of Rheumatology discussed these challenges that rheumatologists and their patients are facing as reproductive health rights are increasingly restricted. Pregnancy can put women with active rheumatologic disease at high risk for complications and even maternal mortality. Women with rheumatologic diseases often need to take drugs that are potentially teratogenic. Thus, conversations about reproductive care are very important between these patients and their clinicians. Changes in the laws across the United States are creating a chilling effect on these conversations. The topic of this month's In the Clinic Review is eating disorders. Individuals with eating disorders frequently present to primary care providers who may also be responsible for their general medical management. This review discusses the diagnosis, medical assessment, and treatment of the most common eating disorders. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and please return in two weeks for the next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.